Chapter Twenty Five, Section Four of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One by Karl Marx, translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Friedrich Engels. Part Seven: The Accumulation of Capital, Chapter Twenty Five: The General Law of Capitalist Accumulation, Section Four: Different Forms of the Relative Surplus Population, The General Law of Capitalistic Accumulation. The relative surplus population exists in every possible form. Every laborer belongs to it during the time when he is only partially employed or wholly unemployed. Not taking into account the great periodically recurring forms that the changing phases of the industrial cycle impress on it, now an acute form during the crisis, then again a chronic form during dull times, it has always three forms: the floating, the latent, the stagnant. In the centers of modern industry, factories, manufactures, ironworks, mines, etc., the laborers are sometimes repelled. Sometimes attracted again in greater masses, the number of those employed increasing on the whole, although in a constantly decreasing proportion to the scale of production. Here, the surplus population exists in the floating form. In the automatic factories, as in all the great workshops where machinery enters as a factor, or where only the modern division of labor is carried out, large numbers of boys are employed up to the age of maturity. When this term is once reached, only a very small number continue to find employment in the same branches of industry, whilst the majority are regularly discharged. This majority forms an element of the floating surplus population, growing with the extension of those branches of industry. Part of them emigrates, following, in fact, capital that has emigrated. One consequence is that the female population grows more rapidly than the male. Testa, England. That the natural increase of the number of laborers does not satisfy the requirements of the accumulation of capital, and yet all the time is in excess of them, is a contradiction inherent to the movement of capital itself. It wants larger numbers of youthful laborers, a smaller number of adults. The contradiction is not more glaring than that other one that there is a complaint of the want of hands, while at the same time many thousands are out of work. Because the division of labor chains them to a particular branch of industry. Footnote: Whilst during the last six months of 1866, eighty to ninety thousand working people in London were thrown out of work, the factory report for that same half year says, "It does not appear absolutely true to say that demand will always produce supply, just at the moment when it is needed. It has not done so with labor, for much machinery has been idle last year for want of hands." Report of the Inspector of Factories, thirty-first October, eighteen sixty-six, page eighty-one. End note. The consumption of labor power by capital is, besides, so rapid that the laborer, halfway through his life, has already more or less completely lived himself out. He falls into the ranks of the supernumeraries, or is thrust down from a higher to a lower step in the scale. It is precisely among the work people of modern industry that we meet with the shortest duration of life. 
Dr. Lee, medical officer of health for Manchester, stated that the average age at death of the Manchester upper middle class was thirty-eight years, while the average age at death of the laboring class was seventeen, while at Liverpool those figures were represented as thirty-five against fifteen. It thus appeared that the well-to-do classes had a lease of life which was more than double the value of that which fell to the lot of the less favored citizens. Footnote. Opening Address to the Sanitary Conference, Birmingham, January 15, 1875, by J. Chamberlain, Mayor of the Town, now 1833, President of the Board of Trade. Endnote. In order to conform to these circumstances, the absolute increase of this section of the proletariat must take place under conditions that shall swell their numbers, although the individual elements are used up rapidly. Hence, rapid renewal of the generations of laborers, this law does not hold for the other classes of the population. The social need is met by early marriages, a necessary consequence of the conditions in which the laborers of modern industry live, and by the premium that the exploitation of children sets on their production. As soon as capitalist production takes possession of agriculture, and in proportion to the extent to which it does so, the demand for an agricultural laboring population falls absolutely, while the accumulation of capital employed in agriculture advances. Without this repulsion being, as in non-agricultural industries, compensated by a greater attraction, part of the agricultural population is therefore constantly on the point of passing over into an urban or manufacturing proletariat, and on the outlook for circumstances favorable to this transformation. Manufacture is used here in the sense of all non-agricultural industries. This source of relative surplus population is thus constantly flowing. But the constant flow towards the towns presupposes, in the country itself, a constant latent surplus population, the extent of which becomes evident only when its channels of outlet open to exceptional width. The agricultural laborer is therefore reduced to the minimum of wages, and always stands with one foot already in the swamp of pauperism. Footnote. 781 towns given in the census for 1861 for England and Wales contain 10,960,998 inhabitants, while the villages and country parishes contained 9,105,226. In 1851, 580 towns were distinguished, and the population in them and the surrounding country was nearly equal. But while in the subsequent ten years the population in the villages and the country increased half a million, the population in the 580 towns increased by a million and a half. The increase of the population of the country parishes is 6.5%, and of the towns, 17.3%. The difference in the rates of increase is due to the migration from country to town. Three-fourths of the total increase in population has taken place in the towns. Census, page 11 and 12, end note. The third category of the relative surplus population, the stagnant, forms a part of the active labor army, but with extremely irregular employment. Hence it furnishes to capital an inexhaustible reservoir of disposable labor power. Its conditions of life sink below the average normal level of the working class. This makes it at once the broad basis of special branches of capitalist exploitation. It is characterized by maximum of working time, 
and minimum of wages. We have learnt to know its chief form under the rubric of domestic industry. It recruits itself constantly from the supernumerary forces of modern industry and agriculture, and specially from those decaying branches of industry where handicraft is yielding to manufacture, manufacture to machinery. Its extent grows, as with the extent and energy of accumulation, the creation of a surplus population advances. But it forms at the same time a self-reproducing and self-perpetuating element of the working class, taking a proportionally greater part in the general increase of that class than the other elements. In fact, not only the number of births and deaths, but the absolute size of the families stand in inverse proportion to the height of wages, and therefore to the amount of means of subsistence of which the different categories of laborers dispose. This law of capitalistic society would sound absurd to savages or even civilized colonists. It calls to mind the boundless reproduction of animals, individually weak and constantly hunted down. Footnote. Poverty seems favorable to generation. A. Smith. This is even a specially wise arrangement of God, according to the gallant and witty Abbe Galliani. Page 78. God ordains that men who carry on trades of primary utility are born in abundance. Misery, up to the extreme point of famine and pestilence, instead of checking, tends to increase population. S. Lang, National Distress, 1844, page 69. After Lang has illustrated this by statistics, he continues, If the people were all in easy circumstances, the world would soon be depopulated. End note. The lowest sediment of the relative surplus population finally dwells in the sphere of pauperism. Exclusive of vagabonds, criminals, prostitutes, in a word, the dangerous classes, this layer of society consists of three categories. First, those able to work. One need only glance superficially at the statistics of English pauperism to find that the quantity of paupers increases with every crisis, and diminishes with every revival of trade. Second, orphans and pauper children. These are candidates for the Industrial Reserve Army, and are, in times of great prosperity, as 1860 especially, speedily and in large numbers enrolled in the active army of laborers. Third, the demoralized and ragged, and those unable to work, chiefly people who succumb to their incapacity for adaptation due to the division of labor, people who have passed the normal age of the laborer, the victims of industry, whose number increases with the increase of dangerous machinery, of mines, chemical works, etc., the mutilated, the sickly, the widows, etc., Pauperism is the hospital of the active labor army and the dead weight of the industrial reserve army. Its production is included in that of the relative surplus population, its necessity in theirs, along with the surplus population. Pauperism forms a condition of capitalist production, and of the capitalist development of wealth. It enters into the faux fray of capitalist production, but capital knows how to throw these. For the most part, from its own shoulders on to those of the working class and the lower middle class. The greater the social wealth, the functioning capital, the extent and energy of its growth, and therefore also the absolute mass of the proletariat and the productiveness of its labor, the greater is the industrial reserve army. The same causes which develop the expansive power of capital develop also the labor power at its disposal. 
The relative mass of the industrial reserve army increases, therefore, with the potential energy of wealth. But the greater this reserve army in proportion to the active labor army, the greater is the mass of a consolidated surplus population, whose misery is in inverse ratio to its torment of labor. The more extensive, finally, the Lazarus layers of the working class, and the industrial reserve army, the greater is official pauperism. This is the absolute general law of capitalist accumulation. Like all other laws, it is modified in its working by many circumstances, the analysis of which does not concern us here. The folly is now patent of the economic wisdom that preaches to the laborers the accommodation of their number to the requirements of capital. The mechanism of capitalist production and accumulation constantly affects this adjustment. The first word of this adaptation is the creation of a relative surplus population, or industrial reserve army. Its last word is the misery of constantly extending strata of the active army of labor, and the dead weight of pauperism. The law by which a constantly increasing quantity of means of production, thanks to the advance in the productiveness of social labor, may be set in movement by a progressively diminishing expenditure of human power, this law, in a capitalist society, where the laborer does not employ the means of production, but the means of production employ the laborer, undergoes a complete inversion, and is expressed thus. The higher the productiveness of labor, the greater is the pressure of the laborers on the means of employment. The more precarious, therefore, becomes their condition of existence, viz. the sale of their own labor power for the increasing of another's wealth, or for the self-expansion of capital. The fact that the means of production and the productiveness of labor increase more rapidly than the productive population expresses itself, therefore, capitalistically, in the inverse form that the laboring population always increases more rapidly than the conditions under which capital can employ this increase for its own self-expansion. We saw in Part 4, when analyzing the production of relative surplus value, Within the capitalist system all methods for raising the social productiveness of labor are brought about at the cost of the individual laborer. All means for the development of production transform themselves into means of domination over and exploitation of the producers. They mutilate the laborer into a fragment of a man, degrade him to the level of an appendage of a machine, destroy every remnant of charm in his work, and turn it into a hated toil. They estrange from him the intellectual potentialities of the labor process, in the same proportion as science is incorporated in it as an independent power. They distort the conditions under which he works, subject him during the labor process to a despotism the more hateful for its meanness. They transform his lifetime into working time, and drag his wife and child beneath the wheels of the juggernaut of capital." But all methods for the production of surplus value are at the same time methods of accumulation, and every extension of accumulation becomes again a means for the development of those methods. It follows, therefore, that in proportion as capital accumulates, the lot of the laborer, be his payment high or low, must grow worse. The law, finally, that always equilibriates the relative surplus population, or industrial reserve army, to the extent and energy of accumulation, this law rivets the laborer to capital more firmly than the wedges of Vulcan did Prometheus to the rock. It establishes an accumulation of misery, corresponding with accumulation of capital. 
Accumulation of wealth at one pole is, therefore, at the same time accumulation of misery, agony of toil, slavery, ignorance, brutality, mental degradation, at the opposite pole, i.e., on the side of the class that produces its own product in the form of capital. This antagonistic character of capitalist accumulation is enunciated in various forms by political economists, although by them it is confounded with phenomena, certainly to some extent analogous, but nevertheless essentially distinct, and belonging to pre-capitalistic modes of production. Footnote. From day to day it thus becomes clearer that the production and relations in which the bourgeoisie moves have not a simple uniform character, but a dual character, that the self-same relations in which wealth is produced, poverty is produced also, that in the self-same relations in which there is a development of productive forces, there is also a force producing repression, that there relations produce bourgeois wealth, i.e., the wealth of the bourgeois class, only by continually annihilating the wealth of the individual members of this class, and by producing an ever-growing proletariat. Karl Marx, Misère de la Philosophie, page 116, end note. The Venetian monk Ortiz, one of the great economic writers of the eighteenth century, regards the antagonism of capitalist production as a general natural law of social wealth. Quote, in the economy of a nation, advantages and evils always balance one another. The abundance of wealth with some people is always equal to the want of it with others. The great riches of a small number are always accompanied by the absolute privation of the first necessaries of life for many others. The wealth of a nation corresponds with its population, and its misery corresponds with its wealth. Diligence in some compels idleness in others. The poor and idle are a necessary consequence of the rich and active. Footnote. G. Ortes, Della Economia Nazionale Libre Se, 1777, in Custode, Parte Moderna, pages 6, 9, 22, 25, etc. Ortes says, page 32, Instead of projecting useless systems for achieving the happiness of people, I shall limit myself to investigating the reasons for their unhappiness. End note. In a thoroughly brutal way, about ten years after Ortes, the Church of England parson, Townsend, glorified misery as a necessary condition of wealth. Legal constraint to labor is attended with too much trouble, violence, and noise, whereas hunger is not only a peaceable, silent, unremitted pleasure, but as the most natural motive to industry and labor, it calls forth the most powerful exertions. Everything, therefore, depends upon making hunger permanent among the working class, and for this, according to Townsend, the principle of population, especially active among the poor, provides. It seems to be a law of nature that the poor should be to a certain degree improvident, i.e., so improvident as to be born without a silver spoon in the mouth, that there may always be some to fulfill the most servile, the most sordid, and the most ignoble offices in the community. The stock of human happiness is thereby much increased, whilst the more delicate are not only relieved from drudgery, but are left at liberty without interruption to pursue those callings which are suited to their various dispositions. It, the poor law, tends to destroy the harmony and beauty, the symmetry and order of that system which God and nature have established in the world. 
If the Venetian monk found in the fatal destiny that makes misery eternal, the raison d'etre of a Christian charity, celibacy, monasteries and holy houses, the Protestant prebendary finds in it a pretext for condemning the laws in virtue of which the poor possessed a right to a miserable public relief. Footnote. A Dissertation on the Poor Laws by a Well-Wisher of Mankind, the Rev. J. Thompson, 1786, republished London, 1817, pages 15, 39, 41. This delicate parson, from whose work just quoted, as well as from his journey through Spain, Malthus often copies whole pages, himself borrowed the greater part of his doctrine from Sir James Stuart, whom he, however, alters in the borrowing. For example, when Stuart says, here in slavery was a forcible method of making mankind diligent for the non-workers, men were then forced to work, i.e., to work gratis for others, because they were slaves of others. Men are now forced to work, i.e., to work gratis for non-workers, because they are the slaves of their necessities. He does not thence conclude, like the fat holder of benefices, that the wage laborer must always go fasting. He wishes, on the contrary, to increase their wants, and to make the increasing number of their wants a stimulus to their labor for the more delicate. End note. The process of social wealth, says Storch, begets this useful class of society, which performs the most wearisome, the vilest, the most disgusting functions, which takes, in a word, on its shoulders all that is disagreeable and servile in life, and procures, thus, for other classes leisure, serenity of mind, and conventional, c'est bon, dignity of character. Footnote. Storch, page 223. End note. Storch asks himself in what, then, really consists the progress of this capitalistic civilization with its misery and its degradation of the masses, as compared with barbarism, he finds but one answer, security. Thanks to the advance of every industry and science, says Sismondi, every laborer can produce every day much more than his consumption requires. But at the same time, whilst his labor produces wealth, that wealth would, were he called on to consume it himself, make him less fit for labor. According to him, men, i.e., non-workers, would probably prefer to do without all artistic perfection and all the enjoyments that manufacturers procure from us, if it were necessary that all should buy them by constant toil like that of the laborer. Exertion today is separated from its recompense. It is not the same man that first works and then reposes, but it is because the one works that the other rests. The indefinite multiplication of the productive powers of labor can then only have, for result, the increase of luxury and enjoyment of the idle rich. Footnote. Sismondi, pages 79, 80, 85. End note. Finally, Destut de Tracy, the fish-blooded bourgeois doctrinaire, blurts out brutally, In poor nations the people are comfortable, in rich nations they are generally poor. Footnote. Destut de Tracy, page 231. The poor nations are those where the people are comfortably off, and the rich nations those where the people are generally poor. End note. End of chapter 25, section 4.